Welcome to Well Wisdom, where we visit with guests and explore topics that help you overcome life's inevitable adversities, both big and small, to find meaning, purpose, joy, happiness, connection, confidence, and strength. This is the essence of resiliency, the ordinary magic that we are all capable of. Welcome to Well Wisdom. We are so fortunate to have Dr. Ursula Alford with us here today. She is a clinical psychologist and a physical therapist, and she specializes in rehab psychology. So her work centers around helping individuals who have been diagnosed with life-changing situations such as a spinal cord injury, a brain injury, Parkinson's disease, dementia, um, and even cancer diagnoses. And so she helps both the patient and their caregiver, family members transition through this very difficult and critical time of diagnosis, uh, diagnoses that just change their entire trajectory um, in life. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Ursula. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I think that um, we're so fortunate because today we'll talk about the neuroscience of mindfulness and neuroscience is one of your areas of expertise, but you have such an interesting background so many rich experiences, expertise, knowledge. And so I thought before we dove in to the piece about mindfulness, we could talk a little bit about the work you do um, and and your journey, your career journey, how you came to do the work that you do. Well, it is a long journey. Um, so I, um, I started out as a physical therapist and I worked primarily with patients, like you mentioned before, who, um, have acquired neurological impairments like, um, brain injury, stroke, or have developed something like Parkinson's disease. Um, and, you know, I also worked with kids too, kids that had cerebral palsy, those kinds of things. And, um, of course, as a physical therapist, I focus on the physical function of my clients. But over time, when you get to be one-on-one with those patients quite a bit, they start to disclose to you a lot of things, right? They, they start to talk to you about how their physical impairments really impact their mental health and their relationships and their work and or not being able to work anymore. And um, I started to get really involved in that and I felt very ill-equipped to make comments or to offer advice because I didn't have any formal training in that area, but I really was interested in it and I could really see that mind-body connection happening and um, so I decided to go back to school and got my master's and PhD in clinical psychology and of course gravitated right back to rehabilitation and ended up in rehabilitation psychology and so what I do now is um, a little bit of both counseling and working with patients who have been through those kinds of things. I also work with their families who are also working now with role reversals, right? So now they're the caregiver and they used to be the one who was being cared for, or, you know, there's lots of role reversals in those situations. And um, also, I do testing. So we do a lot of cognitive testing and, and looking at the impact of how their brain damage has impacted their ability to do day-to-day tasks, problem solving, that kind of thing. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And I know, um, you know, just with my work in healthcare, 
being a physical therapist, there's a lot of neuroscience behind that. Like people may not realize that piece of it as well, because we think of a physical therapist helping us physically move and get, you know, stable after maybe having a stroke or a different type of illness or accident. But it just, it makes so much sense that you are already having this interest in that physical, you know, and the neuroscience, the mind-body connection. And then I could see where patients, you know, going through these difficult times might want some help with, with the, the more interpersonal and the relationship and the psychological end. So that makes such good sense, Ursula. And I'm just curious too, you said you work with children. Do you do anything with ADHD or attention issues? I don't, I don't focus on that much. I did do some of that in my training, but that's not, that's not a big focus of my work now, but yes. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Well, before we jump into mindfulness, um, I know that there's not a single definition of mindfulness and a lot of people view it differently. So I'm curious, how would you describe mindfulness? Um, it's funny. The first thing that I think of when people ask me that, you know, when we talk about mindfulness is, it, it, you know, in a general way, it's just letting go of all that junk in our brain that distracts us from doing the things that we, we want to do and, and being who we need to be. And it's just a way of training yourself to maybe non-judgmentally um, look at things around you and, and take in this, this moment, be conscious in this moment. Don't be thinking about 10 miles down the road or what happened 10 years ago or what you've got to do. It's all about learning how to, to consciously live right now in the present and, um, kind of taking charge of your brain instead of letting it be in charge of you. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it. And so, um, and when that's happening, there's a lot going on, right? But one of the things is we, we feel, especially the way you describe it, very empowered, kind of more living the life we want to live. And that's a very feel good thing. And so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit of the neuroscience behind what, you know, what's happening when we are being mindful and we're feeling those positive emotions. Well, there's a lot happening actually. Um, you know, there has been a huge surge of research, which I'm sure you're aware of, but especially in the field of neuroscience related to mindfulness, really, especially over the last maybe 15 to 20 years, you know, mindfulness has become kind of a, a sexy trend, I guess, for lack of a better way to put yeah. it. But, but, you know, um, and it's funny because unfortunately there's there's good and bad studies and research right and some of that mindfulness research has has kind of been criticized for not being what we call longitudinal in other words they're just looking at this brief moment you know maybe one or two sessions but there have been some good longitudinal research studies as well and and you're right there's lots of changes that happen from a neurological perspective one of those is, is some structural, actual brain structural changes that have been shown to happen with mindfulness and meditation. And particularly, it affects the areas of the brain that are connected to awareness and memory, um, emotional regulation, um, and body awareness even. Um, those structures in the brain are really important for a variety of reasons, especially when we're talking about emotional regulation, um, obviously that's part of the reason that we want to do mindfulness in the first place, right? Um, 
let's think about it in terms of, um, I'll give you a really good example, something that all of us can probably relate to. I think most people are familiar with the fight or flight response. And if something stresses us, we feel it as a threat. There are areas of the brain that are activated. Um, the amygdala, the hypothalamus, they tend to activate our sympathetic nervous system. And without getting too technical, what that looks like is, you know, think about when you're stressed, what happens? You do shallow breathing, your blood pressure increases, your heart rate goes up. Um, it even impacts your vision and your hearing and you just kind of get this tunnel vision. And, and so when that sympathetic nervous system kicks in, that's bad for us, obviously. It causes stress. We start to produce hormones that are bad for us, like increased cortisol levels that go to other organs in our body. And pretty soon, everything is stressed out. One of the things that mindfulness research has shown us is that instead of um, being so reactive, our body being so automatically reactive, we can train our brains to start to really activate the opposite system, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, which has the exact opposite reaction to that sympathetic nervous system. So we start to calm down that heart rate. We start to bring down that blood pressure. We start to do those nice deep breaths to get oxygen to our brain and make us think correctly. Um, and then, you know, obviously that helps us regulate everything else better. Okay, so so brain structure wise, that's one way in what, which it helps us. There's also been some research to show how it affects our neurotransmitters, which are kind of those little chemical messengers in our brain that control our mood regulation, like depression and anxiety and those kinds of things. Um, some of the, the neurotransmitters specifically um, that it's been shown to improve is higher levels of serotonin. Serotonin is directly related to depression. Um, and there have also been studies that show increased levels of dopamine. And dopamine is related to our reward and motivational behavior. So increased levels of dopamine are always a good thing. Um, there's also been studies to show us brainwave changes even. So uh, a better production of our theta and alpha waves, which have a lot um, of correlation to our well-being, our thinking, our ability to relax. Yeah, I mean, and that's so interesting. I, I love um, that deep dive that you took us on, Ursula, because it's like structural changes. So we see, you know, different parts of the brain increasing in size and some decreasing. So that helps us to regulate um, our response or reaction to things in our emotion. Mm -hmm. And you see chemical changes as well as brainwave changes. So all those things really come together um, to create a more lasting effect um, from mindfulness. And um, I appreciate what you were saying about the studies, some studies being better than others. And I'm sure some of it has to do with the number of participants in the study as oh, well. Oh, absolutely. Long, yes. So <laughs> yes. Um, I wonder with, you know, your, your knowledge, like how, for people to begin to see these more um, lasting changes in their brain, like what do you think is the, uh, the right amount of practice they would need to do? Yeah, well, and I, 
obviously I'm not a meditation expert, which is what most of these um, research studies are based in. But what I would say is what I would say to most of my patients about a number of things that would recommend them to do, which is practice. It takes practice. This is not something that you're going to be able to do overnight by any means. This is it. It's, it's like kind of what you would tell a patient when they want to change their weight. You know, it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle change. And I would say the same thing about mindfulness. If you really want to see lasting change, you have to be, I would say, pretty committed to it. It's something that you want to incorporate in your daily life, even if it's just five minutes a day. And that research is showing that it doesn't have to be, you know, a dedicated huge amount of time. Just can be a little bit, but daily practice is what makes those long-term changes. Yeah, I love that. So it's like, you know, there's, it's not a quick fix, just like we can't eat right for two days and lose 20 pounds. Right. And so we need to, yeah, I love that. So we need to look at this as like a lifestyle uh, commitment. I like that you use the word commitment too. And I also, um, I'm with you. It's so refreshing to see the new studies because you know, in the past people would say, well, you need to sit for 20 to 40 minutes a day. And that's really hard to do, you know, sit and meditate for that length of time. But knowing that we can just bring little bits of it in consistently every day and have a positive impact on our well-being and our, you know, our emotional regulation, our brain function is really exciting um, information. And so I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, And I'm wondering, you know, these neurological benefits that you spoke of, like um, you mentioned awareness, and that's something I've seen too, like self-awareness is definitely enhances and, um, you know, through mindfulness. And I've heard about meta-awareness, that that ability to almost, like you're still experiencing things, but it's almost like you're in an audience watching it versus being the actor kind of caught (laughs) up in in the drama of it. Um, I don't know if you would want to add anything to that and maybe the benefit of that as we go through stress during the day. Yeah. So I, I think you brought up a great point and um, I'm sure that you've probably read books um, by John Kabat-Zinn, but um, you know, it, he, he does describe some things that you just alluded to, which is kind of the point of the mindfulness is to be able to take you know, it's not that stress is going to stop. It's not that those stressful activities are going to stop coming at you or that bad things aren't going to happen. It's just learning how to not be so emotionally reactive to those things that you throw yourself into chaos. It's learning Mm -hmm. how to stay even keeled and being able to accept those things and handle those things almost from a more objective point of view than a subjective point of view. Just like you said, more watching it and accepting it than having to feel like you have to take the full brunt of the negative experience on. It's just learning how to, it's a coping it's a, it's a, it's a different way of coping. That's exactly what it is. And mindfulness for my patients personally has been great because, you know, think about what a massive life impact it is for somebody to be, for example, involved in a massive car accident and have a head injury that that changes the trajectory of their entire life and how they handle that. And, 
it can be something as simple as learning how to do deep breathing techniques, how to learn how to do guided meditation techniques, those kinds of things to just get them centered and grounded and keep them from spinning out into what am I going to do? How am I failure? My life is over. You know, it's, it's amazing to watch how effective those very simple things are in grounding people. Yeah, it is amazing. And I love, um, you know, of course, knowing a lot about John Kabat-Zinn, but also Ellen Langer. And I do a lot of work with organizations, more like org development, leadership development. And so she talks about mindfulness very differently. It's it's really using like sensory awareness, but being mm-hmm. able to, it's like making coffee. Think about all of our senses that can go into yes. play when we're doing something like that or washing our face. And so that's a simple way too, to bring mindfulness into our everyday without it being an extra dedicated, um, you know, chunk of time. So when you were talking about that, I was just thinking like how useful that can be, you know, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So continuing the conversation, Ursula, like I'm curious with, especially caregivers and family members that you're working with, um, how do you see mindfulness helping them? A lot of what I see in my office is really anxiety-based. Anxiety about what's to come down the road, anxiety about role changes, anxiety about, you know, different stressors that come with these medical problems and chronic medical conditions. And then, of course, the family and caregivers who are dealing with those things, too. Um, And it's real easy for them to get... um, kind of chaotic in their mind and their thinking about those things and let it kind of take over and create depression and anxiety. And, and they spend a lot of time sometimes um, focused on the things that they can't change. Yeah. You know, and um, that can be really hopeless for a lot of people. If you stay in that mindset of what you, you can't change. And So part of what I think is great about mindfulness is that, like you referred to in your example of making coffee, you know, it is paying attention to what is today, what is in front of you, what can you put your efforts toward today that will make a difference in your day-to-day life, even if it is something simple like getting out of bed, getting up and making a cup of coffee. Um, you know, getting to that doctor's appointment, getting out for a walk today, even if you don't feel like it, you know, those things helping you stay focused in the moment, in the present moment. And, and honestly, mindfulness helps people find joy in what is right now. Yeah. And I think that is awesome. That is one of my favorite parts about doing this kind of work is that sometimes it's, it's hard for people to remember there's still joy to be had when you're going through something really bad and giving them that back and helping them see that, yeah, there's still joy happening around you. It's a great thing. It's a good thing. I agree. And I I think that, I mean, there's so many gifts of mindfulness, but that present moment awareness and to be able to see what is good in the moment and embrace it and focus on that instead of ruminating about the past or worrying about the, the future and, um, yeah, I think that that is so incredibly powerful. Um, and, you know, I've also 
done a lot of work with resilience and it's like for us to be resilient, we have to be in the moment, right? We can't be worrying about, like we, we may want to pull wisdom and, you know, things that encourage us from the past, but we can't, we can't um, have a regret and rumination and all that stuff. And then we also have to hold kind of hope and optimism for the future. But I think mindfulness grounds us in that here and now which allows us to be resilient and strong and to very selectively choose what we want to pull from our past that can support us now and mm-hmm. hold that optimism, you know, future. So it's just, yes. yeah, I agree with you totally. It's just like so inspiring. Um, and so I wonder if you have any tips for people who maybe um, want to try to get started with mindfulness, um, which you might recommend. You know, it's funny that you said that because one of my first complaints from all a good majority of my patients is I just don't have the attention. I don't have the concentration. I don't have the focus. I can't sit down for that period of time, you know, even if it's for two or three minutes. And the truth is some of these people really are just that chaotic, right? They've just got so much going on and so much on their plate and they feel so overwhelmed. You know, I, I just say, you know, you don't have to sit still and do this on your own. There are some wonderful resources out there for guided practice, right? Sit down and let somebody help you do it. <laughs> you don't have to yeah. do it by yourself. Um, you know, I there's some great resources. Like you said, UCLA Health has a wonderful little app. Um, there's some other great app. I mean, you know, there's millions of apps out there, right? They can just start them out with like a two minute guided meditation that just walks them through focusing on their breathing. How are they feeling? What are they hearing? What are they, you know, all of those things that they just can't do on their own, but getting them started with that. Now, I always tell people, you don't have to do this by yourself. That's not what the point of this is, right? So, you know, it's just getting you grounded enough to where you can focus for a little period of time. And, you know, some people just maybe aren't neurologically hardwired to to start out that way. I'm definitely not. I have ADHD myself, and my father is a wonderful meditator and he has been since I've been a child and it has served him greatly but I remember trying to start that practice with him in my late teens early 20s and just squirming around and I'm like god I can't do this and just being out of my mind with it but you know he broke it down for me and he's like start with two minutes literally Mm -hmm. two minutes, you know, and then we added and added and I got up to 15 minutes and I felt so proud of myself. (laughs) I finally got up to 15 minutes, but it's just like anything else that you do in life. You know, if it's something that you want to get good, it takes practice, but you don't have to do it overnight and you can do it incrementally. And there's so many different ways to try and do it, especially with mindfulness, right? There's so many things out there now, so many videos, so many apps, so many guided meditations, so many different things. Yeah, I agree totally. And I think too, um, you know, everybody, different things will appeal to different people. So definitely the the breath focus. I mean, that's like the classic mindfulness meditation. Yes. Um, and it's funny because it sounds so simple. Just focus oh, on your the best. You know what? <laughs> the, I, that is like the best thing to have in your toolbox. That's what I tell my patients too, because that goes with you everywhere. Exactly. You don't have to remember to take it with you. Just breathe. Just tell yourself to breathe. 
do that counted breathing. And it really does work because it, what does it do? We just talked about the parasympathetic nervous system. It's the instant, instant trigger for your parasympathetic nervous system to shut all that other nonsense down, bring down your blood pressure and your heart rate and all of that. I know. And it's so funny, Ursula, as we're talking, I'm just thinking like how many of us have some thing that we have done habitually that maybe isn't good for us. Like maybe when we're stressed, we go eat chocolate or, you know what I mean? So it's like, really, it would take time and intention and commitment, but why not create that habit of going to, you know, a slow exhale, extended exhale breath when you're stressed out. And then that becomes your go-to coping mechanism rather than something maybe that isn't as healthy for you because we all exactly. there's something we're all habitually doing oh you know, yes stressed, certainly you know <laughs> so whatever it is grabbing a drink a cigarette or you know I mean I don't know but it's like there's there's probably that's a great way to like think about just get started in the little way and and um and I find with behavior change like if something really works people will keep doing it and that, um, that will really work. And so I would encourage all of our listeners to, to give that a try. Um, and then the other thing, as you were talking, I was thinking about, because I personally love yoga and that mindful movement for people who find it harder to sit still, there's yoga, yes. yeah, Tai Chi, Qigong, like there's a lot of um, different things. And again, you can find videos for all these and just give them a try you know, online uh, and, and sample and see what really works um, for you. So that's great. That's well, great. Uh, as we're kind of wrapping up, I'm just wondering, Ursula, if there are any um, additional resources you want to share. And I just want to let our listeners know you are in the DFW area. You're in Plano, Texas, and you started um, Blue Star uh uh, psychology and consulting. Mm -hmm. And I think you also are accessible virtually. So I would just love for you to share how people can connect with you if they want to do that and any resources you think might be helpful. Okay. Um, yeah. So I have a website. Um, it's literally just www.bluestarpsychology.com. That's the easiest way to, to connect with me. Um, yeah. And additional resources or you know, just some of the things I actually just kind of alluded to earlier. Um, there are some really great uh, medical center places who have worked really hard on mindfulness research, um, like UCLA Health being one of those. Um, and they, like I said, they have their own app called UCLA Mindful, and it has some great guided meditations in it. Um, if people who are listening to this podcast have not familiarized themselves with John Kabat-Zinn, um, one of the a really great book is called Full Catastrophe Living, um, and it's really targeted for medical problems and chronic pain. Um, that is one thing that mindfulness is really being used for is those chronic pain patients. And so if you, anybody listening happens to be one of those, that's a really great resource to go uh, with. Um, and also mindful.org is a really great resource too. Lots of good information on that website as well. Yeah, that is great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you sure. taking time to be here with us today. And as we close, I always love um, to leave our listeners with a simple wish. So I will do that now. And again, thank you, Ursula. I'm just thank so you grateful. so much for having me. I enjoyed yeah, it. Absolutely. All right. Well, as we close, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you find your mind sharp, quick, and agile. Thank you so much, Ursula. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining me. I hope you found today's well wisdom inspirational and empowering. Is there a golden nugget you can bring forward into your life and perhaps even share with a loved one, friend, or colleague? Here's to you and your amazing ability to be resilient, to create your very own ordinary magic. Until next time, well listeners, 